0: I think we'll get to a point, I hope, and I think we are, where education begins to look a lot more like the breakfast food aisle of the grocery store than it does a one size fits all mass schooling model. And it won't be the same for everybody, right? Like I might like granola for breakfast and you might like Lucky Charms. And I could try to convince you, Hannah, that you should like granola, my small batch organic granola. And I can persuade you that I have the proper breakfast food for for your diet and your health and well-being and you can persuade me that no lucky charms are really what i should be having but we will have that discussion and that conversation in the spirit of persuasion and sharing ideas and information not based on force
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Hannah Frankman podcast. I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Carrie McDonald. Carrie is a fellow at fee.org, the Foundation for Economic Education. She's a writer with Forbes and with the 74, and she's the host of the Liberated podcast, where she interviews micro school founders and homeschooling parents about their experiences in alternative education. Carrie is probably one of the most knowledgeable people I know about the alternative education movement. She's been in the space for years. She's a homeschooling mom herself. She wrote a book called Unschooled in 2019 about the alternative education movement. And she has at this point visited hundreds of alternative schools to talk to the entrepreneurs building them, many of whom are former public school teachers who became disillusioned with the system and left to build something better. She's talked to countless parents sending their kids through these alternative models. She's incredibly well-connected in this space, and she has her finger right on the pulse of everything that's happening in the alternative education movement. So today, Carrie and I talk about the history of education in America. We talk about how the education system is a relatively new phenomenon and how originally we were a population of self-educated people and we were doing just fine before the inception of the public school model. We talk about the rise of the homeschooling movement and the micro-school movement, which traces all the way back to the 1960s. We talk about the biggest changes that have been happening in alternative schooling in America over the past few years, especially since the COVID pandemic in 2020. And we talk about the phenomenon of microschools, what they are, how they work, what makes a good microschool, how regulations are stifling innovation in education and what needs to change to allow entrepreneurs to actually build better alternatives to the public system. We talk about some of the micro schools that Carrie has visited and what makes them so exceptional. And we talk about how counterintuitively alternative education is actually targeted more towards low income families and minority families than it is the wealthy and the different inputs that are driving that innovation and making education alternatives accessible to people. Who maybe historically didn't have access to other options besides public school, and why it's so important that this is happening. This was a really fun interview, and I hope you enjoy listening. Also, as a quick heads up, we had some technical difficulties while we were recording, and Carrie had to switch out her microphone about two thirds of the way through. We were having such a great conversation that we didn't want to stop, but please excuse any change in technical audio levels over the last third of the conversation.
0: Carrie McDonald, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to be with you, Hannah. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it is my
1: absolute pleasure. I feel like every time I get to talk with you, it is such a delight. And of all the people I've had on the show so far, you are probably one of the most important people to get in on the ground floor with an interview, painting a picture of the education landscape, because you are truly the queen of microschools at this point. I don't know if there's anyone else who has visited as many, talked to as many micro school founders, has as clear of a picture of the landscape of what is happening in the world of innovative education as you do. And so I am super excited to go into the weeds with you today about all things alternative education, homeschooling, unschooling, microschooling. We're probably gonna cover all of it today.
0: I am so excited. Thank you for that kind introduction. I'm really inspired by everything that you're doing, Hannah, not only as someone who was unconventionally educated yourself, but now helping to shine a light on all of the possibilities for parents, for learners, uh, and for prospective education entrepreneurs who are really building the new, different, better education system in the U.S. from the bottom up.
1: Yeah. And you're one of the things, I mean, right back at you, everything that you just said, you've been at this for a long time. And I also have been very inspired by your work and everything that you're doing has been super helpful to me as well. And I think is one of the things that makes the education world so special. It's such a positive sun game that once you start meeting people in the education space, everybody's so nice and everybody's so helpful as I'm sure, you know, because you're traveling around meeting all of these people working in this space, but one of the things that I think you're particularly good at articulating, and that's always been really inspiring to me, is you do such a great job talking about the innovation side of education, which is like to the point that you just made. You do such a great job painting a picture of how entrepreneurs are the ones driving the engine of change in education and are the ones building the future of education and you have such a great perspective on the mechanics of how this works and why this is where we need to look to understand what the future of education is going to look like. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit.
0: Absolutely, you know, entrepreneurs are the engine for change in all areas. They're the ones who lead to human progress that make all of our lives better by inventing the goods and services Uh, that lead to human flourishing. And education entrepreneurs are no different. Um, I always say that entrepreneurship is challenging in every sector, but education entrepreneurs uh, encounter even greater challenges. So many more kind of bureaucratic barriers and regulatory roadblocks than entrepreneurs in other sectors because of education's highly regulated format, because of its government monopoly characteristics um, because of the sort of entrenched 19th century educational model or schooling model that we have that just makes it really difficult for new ideas to break through. And yet we are seeing those ideas break through. They've been uh, percolating for decades. And I wrote about many of those uh, kind of earlier micro schools and learning centers and obviously the growth and diversification of the homeschooling movement. Um, that I cataloged in my 2019 book but even since 2019 of course with the education disruption caused by the COVID response um, this is we're just kind of off to the races now in terms of the level of entrepreneurship innovation and expanded education possibilities for kids there's
1: I feel like that is a teaser what you just said of everything that we're going to get into today because there's so much here why is it so hard for people to innovate in the education space from a legal standpoint. There's so much regulation and it varies on a state by state basis too. There are states that are easier, there are states that are harder, but across the board, it's a really challenging space. Can you talk a little bit about some of the roadblocks that people start running into when they start trying to build an innovative school?
0: Sure. And so, you know, I dedicate a whole chapter in my 2019 unschooled book to the history of American education and specifically its uh, roots in compulsion. Um, So if we think about kind of the the beginning or the origin story of compulsory education in the U.S., it really began in the 17th century, not long after the Pilgrims arrived uh, in what became Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, in 1620. By the 1640s, they started passing compulsory education laws. Um, And those laws compelled cities or towns of a certain size to provide education services, to provide either a teacher or open and operate a grammar school for any family that wanted it. So there was sort of this expectation of a state interest in education, and the compulsion um, was focused on the municipalities to provide those services. But but parents weren't compelled to use those government services or government-funded services, and in fact, many didn't. And so we saw kind of in the colonial and revolutionary period in the US, a wide diversity of education options available to families, everything from private schools and public schools that were offered by the cities and towns, charity schools for the poor. Um, There were dame schools, which were these like small micro schools or learning pods in your neighbor's kitchen that would teach uh, particularly young children kind of their three R's apprenticeships were the common pathway to adulthood for adolescents, uh, and homeschooling was really the default. There was this expectation that families were the ones in charge of their children's education, and many of our founding fathers, of course, um, homeschooled without formal education, at least until higher ed. And, uh, and all of that changed beginning in the mid-19th century. And I should just say, obviously, at the time, um, women and um, African Americans were blocked from um, accessing education, and, and thankfully that changed. Um, but by the mid 19th century, the compulsion of education shifted from municipalities to parents, and this was again Massachusetts leading the way in compulsion. And I'm a Massachusetts resident, so I, I can uh, speak to that. But that in 1852, Massachusetts passed the country's first compulsory schooling. Uh, attendance law that for the first time really mandated school attendance under a legal threat of force. The parents would be fined or jailed if they didn't send their children to uh, the local common school. And, you know, we can kind of talk a little bit more about how those laws came to be. A lot of the impetus for compulsory schooling laws uh, in the 1850s and beyond was um, an anti-immigrant sentiment. There was a large influx of um, Irish Catholic immigrants, particularly into the city of Boston. The the, um, population of Boston more than doubled between 1820 and 1840, largely with immigrants that sort of challenged the dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethos of the time and made um, people very nervous, lawmakers very nervous. Uh, In fact, you know, just a couple of years prior to the passage of the compulsory schooling statute in in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts state legislature um, mourned sort of the influx of um, of these immigrants. And at the time they said, those pouring in upon us in masses of thousands upon thousands are wholly of another kind in morals and intellect. That was the Massachusetts legislature, I believe, in 1850, and then, of course, passed this law in 1852, saying everyone needs to be molded into the shape of uh, the kind of dominant culture of the time. Well, a lot of parents began to rebel even then, uh, particularly these um, Catholic families that didn't want their children to be learning in these common schools that were purportedly secular but had the King James Version of the Bible. They had Protestant teachers and texts. Uh, and were really um, challenging sort of their cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And so uh, many Catholic families began creating their own uh, system of parochial schools with their parishes. Um, and that sort of led in the late 1800s to um, state legislatures sort of cracking down on parents and uh, parishes trying to create their own education system. Uh, there were a series of Blaine amendments that were passed in many state constitutions that limited or prevented any kind of education funding, um, going to parochial schools specifically. Um, but it was really, again, to sort of force the parents to send their children to these you know, com- compulsory common schools or public schools. And that all came to a head in the 1920s when the state of Oregon um, made attendance at private schools illegal. They said that all children in the state of Oregon have to attend uh, a public school. And at the time, really, the only private schools that were in existence in Oregon were parochial schools. So it was a really kind of anti-Catholic move. Um, A parish ended up... rebelling, uh, sort of suing the state uh, and, and bringing the famous case of Pierce versus the Society of Sisters to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and the U.S. Supreme Court in 1925 shot down that Oregon law saying that the child is not the mere creature of the state, sort of a landmark Supreme Court decision, upholding parents' rights to choose the education of their children and preventing um, children only from being educated in, uh, you know, government run schools. So that was a victory, but you can sort of see that over time to kind of get to your larger question of why is it so difficult to innovate given this structure, it's because of this kind of legal apparatus around compulsory schooling and this constant tug of war between parents and the state around educating children. And I think um, certainly what we've seen over the past couple of decades is a real movement toward uh, parents' rights in education. And I feel like a, um, a, sort of a a shift in the way we sort of see education more generally in this country, which is that it starts with families, it starts with parents being able to choose uh, where their children are educated, that there's a greater push toward education funding, following students instead of going to school systems. Uh, and that's opening up a lot more possibilities and we can get into kind of the, the um, where we stand now in terms of school choice policies as well. But I think it's a great time to be innovative, um, but there's still always this tension between um, state control of education and parents' rights. All of this is so interesting, How did they
1: get away with making public school attendance mandatory in the beginning when parents were used to having their kids at home? They weren't used to state intervention. How was the state of Massachusetts originally able to come in and just say, sorry, you are not allowed to have your kids at home all day or we will send you to jail?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they really seized on that anti-immigrant sentiment, that fear of um, of immigrants, the sort of xenophobia that was rampant. I think they also got many members of the business community involved to say, look, here's your, uh, ready-made workforce that we will shape into our common mold and they will be ready for your, for your factories and, and what you're working on. So I think there was some of that. Um, and it was really sad, you know, uh, Horace Mann was sort of the architect of American compulsory public schooling. He was the secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Education in 1852. When this uh, law was passed, he visited Prussia, which had this sort of system of compulsory schooling. It had age-segregated classrooms. It had um, a focus on conformity and obedience and compliance that he really fell in love with and wanted to import to the US um, again, that kind of system of orderliness and, and conformity. And so you know he was attracted to that um, and was in, and influenced others in the area around this focus on coercion and compulsion. Um, there were some that rebelled. You know, not everybody was, was in, in favor of compulsory schooling, but that was the path that Massachusetts took. Obviously, uh, other states followed in the subsequent decades. Uh, and Horace Mann's biographer, Jonathan Meserly, writes about how, you know again, prior to 1852, there was sort of this broad... Um, Distribution of education possibilities and services, like I mentioned previously, and then at the beginning in 1852, um, education becomes confined within the four walls of a public school classroom, and that's really where it's remained largely now for um, well over a century and a half. Uh, but I think that that's changing, and I think education choice policies again that enable education funding to follow students sort of redistributing, uh, taxpayer funding for education back to families, back to students, um, is enabling more of that diverse ecosystem of education possibilities to emerge. I find that part of the history so interesting
1: because people forget that there's such a strong historical precedent for a lot of the innovation that's happening now, because we don't have living memory anymore of a world where most kids aren't going, the public school doesn't exist. And most kids are going to a small local private school at best, if they're going to a school at all. And most of them are being educated in the home or by the church or by the community. And people forget that our education rates were very strong at this point in our history. When you look back at the numbers of l- the literacy rates, to your point, you know not everyone was being educated equally in the way that they are now, but when you look at the portion of the population that was expected to be educated, the literacy rates are fairly comparable to what they are now almost exactly comparable, actually, which is very shocking when you go back and look because the predominant narrative now is that if we don't have public school, no one would read and no one would be able to do math and no one would be able to do grammar good. And like we'd have all of these, you know, problems with the education of our population and that historically isn't true at all. And yet when you look at the, when you start talking to people about moving outside of the education system, they become very afraid of education outcomes. That's one of the first things that they bring up. They bring up the socialization point, like your kids aren't going to integrate well into society because they're not going to be properly socialized. They bring up, you know, there's, there's a handful of arguments that everyone makes, but the education components a really big one. And yet, not only was our population highly literate when we had these, this very local locus of education, but the quality of that literacy was also very high. People were reading the Federalist Papers in colonial America as like, they were intended to be pieces published in the local paper to convince people that ratifying the constitution was a good idea. And they were intended for the average layperson. They weren't supposed to be something that was inaccessible. They were explicitly intended to be read and to change hearts and minds. And now they're considered difficult college reading. We don't have the same quality of literacy. I don't know if you saw a few months ago, there was a graphic that was circulating on Twitter. I should go dig this up and, and recirculate this, because I feel like this is a thing that needs to bubble up every, every couple of months. But it was a, I think it was an eighth grade exam from the end of the 18th century, from a, uh, like you know, a local school managed by a school board. The public education system, as we know it, didn't exist yet, and it was like the exam to graduate from eighth grade. And the questions were hard, but they were also really practical. It was like figure out how much interest you owe. If you take out this type of loan, like here are the parameters, calculate this. And it was very pragmatic, intended for kids who are going to go work on the family farm or in the family business to be able to actually handle the math that was required. But the test was for things that kids in eighth grade don't know. Now kids aren't expected to understand. So I feel like there's almost this weird sort of bell curve occurring where people were very comfortable with being educated outside of the system because the system didn't even exist. And then we sort of overcorrected towards having this massively bureaucratic system that was very systematized, but we'll get into this a little bit, but does a terrible job. And now we're starting to swing in the other direction again. Can you talk a little bit about how the sentiments in the public have changed over time? You alluded to this a little bit in the story that you just told, but I'm wondering if maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into how parents, like where in this process, they started to rebel against the systematized model again, where they pulled out and started homeschooling, where the idea of microschooling maybe started to emerge and the one room schoolhouse idea started to come back. What does that side of the story look like?
0: Yeah, there's, there's so much there, but just to kind of put a fine point of what you were talking about earlier with high literacy rates, uh, highly educated citizenry prior to the passage of compulsory school attendance laws in the mid-19th century, really, I think, is an example of the power of freedom over force, um, that before parents were forced to educate their children uh, in an assigned district school, there were this, all of these options for them to choose from and they could choose whatever made the most sense for their families and there was all kinds of kind of private philanthropy and charity available to help those that needed uh, education and didn't have funding to access it. Um, and, and then of course we shift into this force-based or coercive compulsory education model uh, beginning in the mid 19th century. And uh, you know we've sort of seen now, this shifted away from um, compulsory uh, classrooms, compulsory public school classrooms, into the micro school movement and into homeschooling and other exemptions from kind of compulsory schooling attendance laws. And we see um, better outcomes in many cases. We see um, higher academic achievement, higher um, college readiness and career readiness um, when we're kind of operating outside of a system that's founded in force. And, you know, we, that shouldn't be surprising, right, that that humans flourish uh, under freedom. And under freedom, we are able to encourage a wide variety of options to emerge. We're able to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation, Uh, And we're just not able to do that under coercion. Um, And so that's, again, where we see so much innovation and personalization in every other area of our lives uh, except for education. And why is that? Well, it's because education is still so government-controlled. It still rests on compulsion and coercion uh, and force. And so it's not surprising that we're not seeing the levels of personalization, individualization, innovation, in education that we see in other freer sectors of our economy. Um, But again, you're right that that is changing and it has been changing over time. I mentioned again, the story of even in the very early days of compulsory schooling statutes, um, uh, families that were rebelling against kind of the common school movement and particularly um, parochial, the, the advent of parochial schools throughout the 19th century. Uh, The modern homeschooling movement began in earnest beginning in the 1960s, first on the countercultural left, the political left that was unhappy with kind of the growing um, institutionalization of schooling. There was uh, kind of ideological differences uh, in the public school classrooms at that time. So it was really sort of these hippies of the 1960s that uh, pushed away from from institutional schools from public schools uh, for homeschooling. And then that led to um, an even greater portion of families on the conservative right um, that also kind of gravitated toward homeschooling and family-centered education throughout the 1980s. Homeschooling became legally recognized in all U.S. states by the mid-1990s. The U.S. Department of Education first began tracking or counting homeschoolers in the late 1990s. They counted about about 800,000 homeschoolers in 1998. Now uh, we are over three and a half million homeschoolers um, at well above pre-pandemic levels. There was an enormous surge, obviously, during the COVID years, Um, families pulling their kids out of school, uh, unhappy with closed district schools or remote schooling and wanted to try homeschooling. And, And while some of them went back, to district schools, many uh, have remained as independent homeschoolers and many others um, have enrolled in low-cost private schools or microschools, or learning pods or online learning platforms that were intended to be uh, virtual learning communities. Uh, and so we're continuing to see growth there. Can you talk a little bit, what are some
1: of the biggest practical roadblocks that people run into? when they go to start a micro school, because the government has has been in the business of making this difficult for a century and a half at this point. There's been so much regulation layered on top. To your point earlier, this is one of the hardest areas to innovate in. And I know it varies on a state-by-state basis, but when somebody decides, I'm, you know what, I've had it with the system, I want to start a micro school for my kids, or maybe they're a teacher that's exiting the system and they want to do something independently. What are some of the biggest challenges that make that process more difficult than libertarians like us would like it to be?
0: There are so many examples. We could be here all day talking about some of the regulatory roadblocks for education entrepreneurs, and particularly education entrepreneurs who are looking to create unconventional learning models. Um, It's, it's, it's still difficult for education entrepreneurs who might want to open a traditional private school. There's, it's still, you know, not, easy to do in a lot of areas, but it's easier to do than those who might really be trying to challenge the schooling status quo uh, with an entirely new way of approaching teaching and learning. So I wrote a paper last year for the State Policy Network that detailed sort of seven recommendations for uh, local policymakers to consider to make it easier for education entrepreneurs who are building new learning models. These would be things around addressing um, sort of overly restrictive of um, child care licensing requirements that often you'll have an entrepreneur in some states trying to open uh, a micro school or a learning center that would Uh, focus on school age children like K to 12, but they might get ensnared in daycare licensing or childcare licensing often just because there's not a box for them. And so regulators don't really know what to do with uh, a micro school that might have kind of a hybrid learning model where the kids are there some days and not there some days um, and they just don't know where to fit. So sort of tackling some of those existing regulations that might uh, ensnare new entrepreneurs. Similar to that, in some states, it's really difficult to open a private school. In other states, it's really easy to open a private school. And so making it easier to open any kind of private school, um, just like we would any business, right? Why are we creating barriers to someone who wants to open a small business and encourage voluntary exchange between, you know, willing consumers? Uh, you know, why would we try to make that more difficult for families, Um, Trying to find the best education environment for their kids. So that's another recommendation. Um, zoning is a huge problem for education entrepreneurs and uh, those founding schools or learning centers often public schools are able to operate in residential zones and kind of leafy suburbs, um, whereas uh, education entrepreneurs or new school founders might be forced into kind of commercial locations on busy streets with no outside space um, because they're not allowed to operate in residential zones in some cases. And this was also true for the charter school world. As charter schools were getting going, they encountered a lot of these same challenges. So that's another issue. Compulsory schooling laws remain a problem uh, in many, areas. So there are are those kinds of challenges. And then just to give you a a couple of kind of real life examples of some of the the issues that these entrepreneurs encounter. I had on my podcast um, a school founder in Iowa, Nick Lacken, who was a high school physics teacher for many years, but became really disillusioned as so many education entrepreneurs are with standardized one size fits all education system and he wanted something different for his young children and kind of started searching around for different education models discovered the Sudbury model of education modeled after Sudbury Valley School in that was founded in 1968 in Massachusetts and Nick wanted to create a Sudbury model school in Iowa because one didn't exist Um, and so he began kind of going through the process to open a private school in the state of Iowa. But Iowa is one of the most difficult states in the country to open a private school. It has to be kind of approved and accredited by uh, state agencies. And he battled with the State Department of Education for a year um, and was just not able to open A Sudbury model school was just not able to hang up his shingle, (laughs) despite the fact that he had families wanting to send their kids to this model of school that had been around for a half century. Uh, So he ended up leaving the state, you know, pulling his his whole family out of Iowa, despite the fact that both sets of grandparents were there, lots of family members and friends, just so his kids could attend a Sudbury model school elsewhere and this preceded any passage of school choice policies. At Iowa just this year 2023 passed a universal education savings account program uh, that would enable education funding to go to families to, cho- to use at accredited private schools. Um, but this had nothing to do with any kind of taxpayer funding of education or school choice policies. This was several years back when he just wanted to open a, a small business and uh, had to, you know, encounter those challenges. So that's an issue. I've talked to other entrepreneurs who talk about, you know, they might have um, twenty kids in a microschool. But various zoning and occupancy regulations, either at the local or state level, require them to have, you know, three bathrooms uh, for 20 kids and like a thousand square foot (laughs) building. Uh, So some of it just defies common sense. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that traditional, um, the kind of traditional regulatory apparatus around schooling is looking at schools as these large um, kind of one size fits all mass schooling models. And it's just, they're just not reflecting these emerging innovative um, much more kind of personalized learning models that we're seeing today.
1: How much do you think that this regulation is a f- just sort of a accidental side effect of the fact that we've been building this huge bureaucracy for so long that it just sort of applied universally versus an intentional attempt to defend a state sanctioned monopoly on education?
0: Yeah, I think it's both. Um, I think that some of it is to sort of protect traditional models of schooling I think there there is a lot of protectionism you know go back to the example of Iowa in terms of the schools that that are allowed to be accredited you know who are the state agencies saying uh, has the ability to exist uh, and so there are sort of the incumbents and uh, incumbent models of education that the state recognizes as um, the ones that they're enabling to exist while crowding out any sort of innovative or more learner-centered, learner-directed models. So there is that. Um, And then there's sort of new regulations that I think we have to be watchful for and that may you know, continue to sprout, particularly as we see more families choosing alternatives to an assigned district school, and as we see uh, the growing popularity and implementation of school choice policies uh, across the country. I, I, I use the example of Tennessee, for example. Tennessee as another state where it's not particularly easy to start a private school, though I would say probably a little bit easier than in Iowa. Um, But you do need state approval to launch any kind of private school in Tennessee, again, regardless of whether or not you're participating in any school choice policies there. This is just your ability to exist, open your your doors. And um, this year, uh, the... The state just passed new regulations that went into effect uh, in August that said you can't open your doors unless you have 10 or more students starting in your private school. Uh, So you can't get approval to to exist, to operate, unless you have 10 or more students. Well, I interviewed uh, Coy Moorfield, who runs the Lab School of Memphis. Um, and her, she's a former public school teacher in the Chicago public schools and in the Memphis public schools, wasn't satisfied with the education options for her four children and was also kind of personally dissatisfied with what she was seeing uh, in the classroom. So she came, decided to create her own program back in the fall of 2021. She opened with five kids. Uh, by the end of that year, she had 20 kids. Now she has about 40 kids. Well, she says, you know, I wouldn't have been able to even open my doors today because I had only five to begin with, and now I would need 10. So she wouldn't have even been able to launch uh, her program in the state of Tennessee, given these new rules. And so I think we'll sort of see some of that um, regulatory encroachment, and we just have to be very vigilant. And again, it's going to be a lot of these kind of unconventional educational models that are going to feel those regulations most and arguably are the ones being targeted because they are uh, you know, truly reshaping education uh, for the, from the ground up.
1: A lot of people are concerned about the school choice movement because they're afraid it's going to go hand in hand with what you just described. A lot of homeschooling parents feel like they're kind of able to fly under the radar depending on what state they're in. Some states they definitely cannot, but in some states they're fairly unregulated. They're kind of left alone and they're very concerned that a school choice movement is going to bring a lot more oversight to what they're doing as well. And a lot of other people are afraid that the regulation is going to extend into the private schooling sector the way that you just described. How do you feel about the school choice movement and the potential implications of it. I've mostly heard you speak very positively about it, but what's your level of concern or what would you say to the parents who are concerned about school choice, maybe starting to over-regulate the private space?
0: Yeah. I mean, we should always be concerned about government regulation of education, specifically government regulation of private education, Um, Already, though, we have the state um, regulating private education, including states without any, you know, meaningful private school choice policies. For example, I think about New York, probably the most difficult state to homeschool in has the most kind of regulatory barriers and expectations for homeschooling families in that state. And and New York does not have private school choice policies. Um, So we, you know, we are already seeing that states, have the power to regulate education. Um, And I think that school choice policies, if anything, uh, may limit that power, right? By redistributing that power to families to be able to make those choices and by activating entrepreneurs who can create the education models that families really want. So I see that kind of competitive pressure as actually being a way to lower government power, limit government power, and uh, enable more kind of parent and family uh, choice and finding the right education option for their kids.
1: I agree with you on all of this. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because a lot of people are also concerned about a lack of regulation leading to poor educational outcomes. If we don't have standards for our children, how do we know that they're not going to grow up super illiterate and only able to play video games? How do you respond to people who are concerned about decreasing the level of regulation in these chaotic anarchistic alternative programs that are emerging because they're afraid that the kids going into those programs are not going to be well-educated.
0: Well, I mean, look at the level of accountability we have in uh, public schools, right? Like we'll say public schools are so accountable. They have these, you know, standardized curriculum. They have very frequent standardized testing. Uh, look at all these accountability measures. And yet so many students are, are failing. You know, I, I love um, listening, for example, to Bernita Bradley, who's the founder of Engage Detroit in Detroit, Michigan, longtime parent advocate. Uh, in Detroit. And then beginning in 2020, she began supporting homeschooling families. When schools were shut down, she uh, launched her organization with about 20 families and uh, 20, excuse me, about a dozen families in 2020. Now she serves over 100 homeschooling families in Detroit, nearly 250 learners. And, you know, one of the things that, that she says, and she was recently in an NPR interview, and she um, speaks frequently about this issue, she'll say, you know the Detroit public schools, we only have 14% proficiency rates um, in, a, in a system that's supposedly quite accountable, right? So I think we have to look at what we mean by that um, and then recognize that kind of our existing uh, accountability frameworks are actually failing large numbers of students, particularly low-income students and those from historically marginalized groups, and that it's these emerging models, particularly these Um, highly individualized, mastery-based educational models that are serving kids that in many cases weren't being served in traditional public schools, and many more that are finding that they can be creative and curious and and pursue their passions and interests um, in a a much more authentic way outside of a conventional classroom than in it. Um, So, you know, what do we mean by accountability? We could talk about this, you know, forever, right? So, Accountability could look like test scores, and a lot of these micro-schools and innovative models have students performing quite well on what we would think of as standardized tests or as standardized accountability metrics, in many cases better than local district schools, um, and maybe coming in below grade level from a public school and then leaping to above grade level in a micro-school environment where there is that kind of one-on-one or small, uh, small group focus. But there's also other kind of non-academic outcomes, Um, not only what, what I was saying previously of creativity and curiosity and the ability to pursue one's passions, but happiness and joy, right? Like I talked to one micro school founder in the Kansas City area, who was a former public school teacher and most of these education entrepreneurs that I interview, and I bet you find this too, Hannah, are, are former public school teachers, kind of see how the sausage gets made in, in uh, public schools and realize they can do something different. That was certainly the case with this founder. Um, and she opened up her program. One of her students, after just being in her home-based micro school for a few weeks, said to his mom, you know, I no longer have Sunday night stomach aches. He would get really nauseous and have a lot of pain on Sunday evenings getting ready for each new school week. Um, And now that anxiety and dread has disappeared uh, in an environment that really respects him as an individual learner, targets curriculum around his specific needs, um, doesn't have that kind of pressure cooker environment that conventional schools have. So that's an outcome, right? Like, do you have Sunday night stomach aches anymore? So I think that one of the things the unconventional education space does is enable us to think about educational outcomes, think about metrics of success um, beyond uh, a standardized test score.
1: I tend to be much more interested in the entrepreneurial side of education than I personally do the political side. There are, the political side is important too. There are a lot of really great people fighting that fight, but I do think the political side is a good temperature check for how much progress the entrepreneurial side is making and how much progress the families are making. And I do feel like the climate has changed a lot over the past few years politically, and that's something that you have a really great pulse on. We, I had a friend send me a video on Twitter a couple days ago of a clip of a Donald Trump campaign speech where he was talking about homeschoolers, and I thought it was very interesting that homeschooling has become such a point of passion for so many families that it's a thing that political candidates are talking about as a reason why people should vote for them. And it's something that we've seen over the past couple of election cycles where elections have been swung over school choice issues in Florida. I think you were the one who wrote about this. In Florida, the last governor election was swung in part by moms who cared about their school choice rights, if I remember this story correctly. there are some really powerful stories that we're seeing of, you know, politicians know that the momentum is not in favor of public schools anymore. And I think, you know, that, that's, that's where it gets really real when people start becoming afraid of not catering to the people who care about education. And I think we're starting to see that. And I know you've seen a lot of stories about this and the work that you do, you feel like you have a really good temperature check on, on where we're at with this.
0: Yeah. Hannah. And if I could just add to that, um, you know, I think it's the entrepreneurs themselves really that have convinced me um, to become an even bigger advocate for school choice policies. Um, you know, I was always supportive of education funding being re- redistributed and um, following families instead of going to school systems, but I became much more enthusiastic about that from listening to the stories of these entrepreneurs and the students they're serving. And you brought up Florida. Um, which has had a long history of robust school choice policies. They've had tax credit scholarship program for low-income families for a number of years. They've had programs, ESA programs, specifically for students with special needs. Now, this year, they just passed a universal ESA, Universal Education Savings Account program that allows all K-12 students in the state to have access to education funding to use um, on various educational expenses, including microschools and uh, homeschooling expenses and curriculum and supplies and tutoring and educational therapies. So it's, it's really a, a game changer there. But one story in particular that I think illustrates what I, what I mean by the entrepreneurs themselves sort of convincing us of the value of education choice Um, I interviewed uh, uh, an entrepreneur, Felicia Rattray, who was, again, a longtime public school teacher who um, had recently gained custody of her nephew when schools went remote in 2020. And she discovered through remote Zoom schooling that her nephew, who was in the third grade by age, was really performing academically at a kindergarten level, and she had no idea And she realized, again, through Zoom school, like so many parents and caregivers, that that she really had to take matters into her own hands. And that's what prompted her to create a micro school in South Florida. So she uh, started by incubating her micro school at another micro school that was more established, was able to kind of lease out space to get going. And then within a year, she was able to find her own space and she opened Permission to Succeed Academy in Fort Lauderdale with about 20 students and uh, mixed age. She had four instructors, including her. And she, she told me that, and this was before the passage of the ESA. So this would have been in, um, in the fall of 2021. She said that she, uh, all, all but two of her, only two of her students, only two of those 20 students that she began with in her own building would have been able to attend. Um, without the school choice programs that everyone else Um, wouldn't have been able to pay the tuition, which was already quite low, I mean, significantly lower than any other private education option, but still out of reach financially for many low-income families, and those were the families that she was primarily serving. So that's an example of where um, only two of 20 kids would have been able to come to her incredibly individualized, personalized program with high achievement. I mean, she saw dramatic improvement in her own nephew and, and others, Um, And now she has 70 students and, and opening more micro schools and the goal being to have one of her micro schools in every county in Florida.
1: That's amazing. I find the stories of schools that are replicating their model out into either franchises or into just like different locations, all under the same core operating management structure. There are different models that people are using, but these individuals who find a model that really works in their flagship school and then it starts to proliferate out into different locations so kids in other areas can attend. And oftentimes there's some type of geographic sort of cohesion around these different models. So like you've just mentioned the school in Florida, there's a great school in Colorado that's trying to build the micro school of mountain towns. So they're in like a handful of different ski towns through Colorado and eventually they wanna be in all of the core mountain towns in Colorado. And I find there's so much room for innovation and for customization, not just around the kids, but also the environment. Like if you're building a school in mountain towns, there's so much that you can Build into your model that's consistent across every location, but that's customized to the broader region. Like you can learn about Colorado history and you can learn about mountain ecology and you can have an extra emphasis on geology because the kids are in the mountains. So there are rocks everywhere and it's a core part of the environment that they live in. And there's just so much you can have. I don't know, you can partner with local. Uh, different like ski resorts and have skiing, be part of the kids' PE. There's so much that you can build into a school that also anchors kids to their environment, which is very important for kids to understand the world that they're grounded into as humans, which public school does a terrible job of. It's in the business of divorcing kids from environment, not placing them in it. So I find all of these different creative ways that entrepreneurs are not just delivering the core academic subjects of K-12, but are also delivering innovative, different types of, of education options that are, you know, really customized to the child and customized to the environment and customized to the interests of the group of ch- children that they're working with. I feel like the possibilities are so endless and that's so much fun to watch what's emerging and i'd love to talk a little bit about you do such a great job advocating for marketplaces of options you want to see a marketplace of education options that parents can choose from you want to live in a world where we don't just have this one default monopoly that everyone's turning to we have true choice and i'd love can you paint a picture of what the world is that you would like to see us living in when it comes to education? Like, what does a true marketplace look like, not just in terms of practical options that are available, but its functionality to keep the different pieces in check and hold each other accountable, both in terms of pricing and in terms of quality? Like, what does this look like if we actually win this fight?
0: Well, at first, I think we we are winning this fight. I mean, this is happening, right? Education, entrepreneurship, these innovative learning models are... Um, accelerating. Uh, they are in high demand. I, I mentioned the Kansas City area I was visiting there a couple of weeks ago. I visited seven microschools. All seven had been launched by former public school teachers who quit to launch these programs all within the past three years um, and all growing and, and in, in many cases kind of at capacity with waiting lists. So this is not slowing down. We are just at the beginning of the unconventional education movement of uh, broadening possibilities in education for families. So that's one piece of it. And then I'll just add, too, you know, this is happening all across the U.S. You mentioned mountain towns. This is happening in, you know, tiny rural communities um, with, you know, fewer than 100 people uh, to, you know, Metropolises, You know, we're finding this in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas or Detroit, Michigan or New York City. And it's happening in states with and without school choice policies. So, so it really is, um, is everywhere. And I think I love your question, what does it look like when we have this marketplace of education options? And I think it really looks a lot like the breakfast aisle of your local grocery store. So if you think about it, you walk down the breakfast aisle of your grocery store and you have a wide assortment of food choices you could have oatmeal you could have granola you could have breakfast bars you could have an endless supply of different uh, varieties of cereal you could have pancake mix Uh, then you could have different varieties within that you can have organic oatmeal or conventional oatmeal you know all kinds of different steel cut or (laughs) rolled oats you know all kinds of choices and options Um, and again we have that in so many other areas of our lives and in education it's so one size fits all. But again, that is changing. And I think we'll get to a point, I hope, and I think we are, where education begins to look a lot more like the breakfast food aisle of the grocery store than it does a one size fits all kind of mass schooling model. And because of that marketplace, because of that entrepreneurship and that competition and innovation, families will be able to find just what they're looking for. And um, and it won't be the same for everybody, right? Like I might like granola for breakfast, and you might like Lucky Charms. And I could try to convince you, Hannah, that you should like granola, my small batch organic granola, and I can persuade you that I have the proper breakfast food for for your diet and your health and well being. And you can persuade me that no Lucky Charms are really what I should be having. But we will have that discussion and that conversation in the spirit of persuasion and sharing ideas and information, not based on force. To be very clear, I would not be a Lucky Charms consumer in this
1: analogy. (laughs) (laughs) I would be like, no steak and eggs, which you can't even get in the breakfast food (laughs) aisle because I'm like, pushing the envelope even farther because that's just my personality and also steak and eggs is good. Um, but yeah, I, I love this analogy and I think this is so important for this conversation for people to to grasp that, you know, all of these the these different options that are emerging are not chaos the way that people sometimes fear. It's it's much more controlled. It's much more uh, not externally controlled, but just like by by nature of the environment, this is emerging in. Like people, to be to succeed as a micro school, you have to deliver results to your families. Like at the end of the day, the kids have to be happy. They also have to be learning because that's what parents care about. That's what they're paying money for. And even if they're they have the ESA money to cover it, so they're not you know paying for this out of pocket. They still need the they still need the results because they're, you know, expending effort to make this happen. It's not as easy as just defaulting to your local public school. You have to put in the work to find the school, choose the school, transfer the ESA funding over. It requires an expenditure of effort. And so these schools are being held accountable by the parents and they have to be better than the public schools in order to survive. And so by nature, almost all of the ones that are thriving are better than public school, often significantly so. And when you talk to the kids coming out of these programs, it's very clear that they're absolutely thriving. But I wanna pivot to talk more about the micro schools themselves, because this is really your area of expertise. You have a lot of areas of expertise, but this is your big one. Um, And there's so much here to dig into. And I wanna do a definition of terms first because we've been talking about micro for almost an hour now, and we haven't fully defined what we mean by that. And I've had other people on the show or am having shortly other people on the show who are building microschools. Ryan Delk of Primer, Kelly Smith of Prenda, Chris Turner, who's building Moonrise in Atlanta, Georgia. There will be many others on the show in the coming months who are in the micro school space in some capacity, but it is by definition a bit of a loosely defined term. Some people say that if you have more than like 20 or 30 kids, is it really a micro school anymore? And other people say, no, if you have 200 kids, but it's, you know, structured in a way that's like fully independent from any other organizations, it still counts as a micro school. How do you define what a micro school is?
0: Well, I think it's best to keep it undefined and let individual entrepreneurs uh, self identify and define what they do themselves. I look at microschools as a catch all term, an umbrella term to describe a whole variety of often unconventional, learner centered, highly individualized, typically mixed age learning models. I used the term microschools in my 2019 book to look at the kind of advent of these unconventional learning models over the first couple of decades of the new millennium, um, learning centers for homeschoolers, learning pods, or what became known as pandemic pods, uh, beginning in 2020, um, and small, kind of low-cost private schools, uh, but that all kind of shared that commitment to individualized learning, mixed-age play, um, a learner-centered curriculum, that kind of thing. So I think keeping the definition of microschooling very broad is, is beneficial. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll talk to some people, and they'll say, oh, I never even really thought of myself as a microschool. But but in uh, sort of self-identifying that way, they realize they're part of a much larger movement. And microschooling is really just the descriptor for that. So the National Microschooling Center, Dawn and Ashley Soifer, who run the National Microschooling Center, estimate um, about 125,000 microschools nationwide. That's looking at data from EdChoice uh, serving roughly one and a half million students. Um, so this is something, again, that's very diverse, that's geographically um, uh, broad, that's reaching all kinds of different families and learners, uh, but again, have some of those ki- common characteristics of really pushing the envelope on what education could and should be and and looking quite different from conventional classroom experiences. Are there types
1: of private schools that you would not classify as micro schools? Maybe, I mean, obviously you're very traditional private schools that fall under the same sort of instructional umbrella as public schools. They're very similar to public schools, but they have a slightly different ideological bent or, you know, a religious bent like those I feel are very closely tied to public schools and sort of intuitively don't fall under the umbrella of a micro school. But are there other types of private schools that you would not classify?
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't turn anyone away <laughs> from using the term micro schooling or or claiming that it's what they're doing. Um, but certainly the the entrepreneurs that I talk to and that I spotlight um, are really focused on that individualized learning um, kind of movement or individualized learning approach. And so that could look like a classical micro school that's kind of using a classical curriculum. It could look at, you know, faith-based programs that um, use what we consider kind of conventional curriculum, but they're doing that in a way that's highly individualized. They are not giving sort of this one-size-fits-all curriculum approach or educational experience like we would find in traditional public or traditional private schools, they're saying, we're going to let you go at your own pace, we're going to meet your needs, we're going to pivot, we're going to kind of craft this curriculum around what is appropriate for you. Uh, and I am seeing that happen in all kinds of different microschools all across the country that have very, very different educational philosophies.
1: You've traveled to visit a very extensive amount of micro schools at this point. You've also talked to a plethora of micro school founders, how many schools have you gone to visit at this point? Do you even know how many it's been? Oh, I
0: don't know if I know how. That's a good question. I should actually count that up. But definitely, you know, hundreds of education entrepreneurs just over the past three years and many more before that, as I was, again, kind of cataloging the um, early growth of this movement uh, in preparation for my book. Um, So, it's just exciting, and it's just great to see the continued growth, because even when my book came out in 2019, you know, I was really optimistic that we're going to see the continued emergence of unconventional education um, models. That particular book looked at only one educational philosophy, self-directed education or unschooling, but what's so great about this current movement is that it's extremely diverse, all kinds of different educational philosophies and approaches. Um, but even then, I was optimistic that we'd see growth. The, 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 the COVID response and school shutdowns and remote learning has just accelerated this movement. Um, it's really, I think, opened up parents' minds to what's possible with education. It's encouraged current and former public school teachers to open up their own programs. It's encouraged entrepreneurial parents to launch pods or ho- create homeschooling collaboratives. Um, So there's just really been, I think, so much more momentum since 2020, but this was certainly building before that.
1: So what have been some of the most interesting things that you've observed visiting all of these micro schools? I'm certain you see many commonalities. I'm certain you also see differences. What have been... Either some of the most interesting micro schools themselves that have stood out to you or more broadly, some of the more interesting trends and observations that you've been able to see?
0: There's so much there. I mean, I guess, um, you know, let's start by by just talking about the diversity, again, of the models, Um, a diversity of the people and the programs. The founders who are creating these programs are diverse in every possible way, demographically, geographically, ideologically, Uh, philosophically in terms of their educational approaches. The students they're serving are diverse in every possible way. Um, The models themselves really are, you know, focused on, on, you know, one preference or one vision or one value. And so families are able to decide what it is they want. Again, back to Granola or Lucky Charms, like you just decide based on your own family values, your own personal preferences. What's right for you, and the kind of growth and diversification of these models is really making that more possible. So that's really exciting. I think about data coming out to kind of back this up, specifically from the Vela Education Fund, which is a national philanthropic nonprofit organization that supports these unconventional learning models, out of system learner centered models. They launched in 2019 and have now given out grants to more than 2,400 of these everyday entrepreneurs, these parents and teachers building these uh, non-traditional models. And uh, the grants have totaled over $28 million in philanthropy. So just to really kind of catalyze this movement and and provide more um, support for them. And one of the things they've found in in surveying their more than 2,000 grantees is that Um, Ninety-three percent of the learners and families served by these programs are low-income or from historically marginalized groups. So this is not what we think of as traditional private schooling that tends to be for more affluent families, tends to be more of an elite kind of exclusive uh, education option, the kind of microschooling and unconventional learning ecosystem. Uh, is really focused on um, low- and middle-income families. And a lot of founders, uh, in fact, more than half of the founders in this survey from Vela said that they're specifically focused on communities such as low-income communities and those from historically marginalized groups. Um, So we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, About half of their founders in the Vela network are founders of color. Um, so it, it's just really wonderful to see kind of hyper-local, community-based education initiatives that families are really responding to and to see so much growth there. So that's, I think, really exciting. I'm also excited by um, the kind of different learning models that are being created geared towards specific um, types of learners. So there's some microschools that are emerging specifically for neurodiverse children or those with autism or ADHD or dyslexia and language learning needs. So those are being created. There's um, microschools being created for members of the LGBTQ+ plus community that are serving those needs. So again, it's really this bespoke, hyperlocal, differentiated uh, education ecosystem that is decentralized and that really is something for everyone.
1: The low-income side of this conversation is really interesting to me. This is something I'm already familiar with, but it's very counterintuitive to a lot of the narratives that we hold culturally about how private education works and who it's relegated to. And I'm really curious about what's driving this movement towards private education in the form of micro schools for low income families and also why that's what's being, like they're the customers that are being catered towards because it's almost, when you think about it from a very external standpoint, it's almost counterintuitive. Like it's not where I think the average person's expectations lie when they start thinking about alternative education, because that's not where the money is. So like, why would founders be building towards the low-income families when they can be building higher price point schools for people who have more resources and can better fund these alternatives for their kids? And then, you know, more money is coming into the school to build. I think a lot of people see this as being, you know, you only have access to this if you're wealthy. And yet you're talking about entrepreneurs coming in and intentionally building options for, low-income families, what is the engine that's driving that momentum?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's community-driven. So my most recent article, for example, for The 74, featured Amber Okolo-Abube, who runs Leading Little Arrows in the Fort Worth area of Texas. So it kind of started as a homeschooling collaborative, largely serving um, BIPOC families Black Indigenous people of color, and has just expanded rapidly. She's uh, now a quarter finalist for the Yas Prize, the prestigious uh, prize for education innovation um, and permissionless education. Her program is at capacity. She's opening up additional locations, and she just will say. Uh, as she did in, in, in my interview with her, that, that this is just really beginning, um, particularly among the BIPOC community that she's a part of in, in that area of Texas, with families uh, having their eyes open during COVID, realizing what was happening in classrooms, realizing that there were other possibilities, being open to new possibilities of what teaching and learning could look like and now uh, responding to people like her and others like her that are creating these uh, learning communities and, and homeschooling collaboratives and micro schools um, to meet their needs. And so I think it's really being driven by the communities themselves. A lot of it's entrepreneurial teachers and parents creating these programs. And they, you know, they've always been, most of them have always been, Inherently low cost. I mean, even the micro schools that I was profiling in my book that preceded uh, the COVID disruption, those micro schools were a fraction of the cost, often a third or a quarter of the cost of traditional private schools intentionally because they did not want to be like traditional private schools. They didn't want the bureaucracy. They didn't want the staffing. There's no development team They're, You know, they're they're really lean and focused on Um, building relationships between uh, educators and learners and supporting learners in, um, you know, meeting their full potential as individuals.
1: You have such a great pulse on what's happening in this alternative movement. And like you said, there are estimated 125,000 micro schools in America. That's an incredible number. There are, I've seen the estimates of how many homeschoolers are currently, how many homeschools currently exist in America and the estimates range from like three and a half million to all the way up to five million, like different people throw different numbers around. It's hard to track exactly, but there are a lot of them. There's so much momentum here and yet it still is a small fraction of the students in this country at large. if you you know, depending on the homeschool number estimate that's most accurate, it's like maybe the size of the student population of Texas, like not accounting for all other forty-nine states worth of kids that are still enrolled in more traditional models. Um, there's a lot of work to be done here, and the the temperature of the conversation is definitely changing. Like politically, it's more of a talking point now. School choice has passed in a bunch of states over the past couple of years. There's a lot of momentum there, but we're still in the early days and there still are a lot of people culturally who have a really hard time wrapping their heads around alternatives to the public system, the idea that the public system is broken there's, you know, we still have a very, the momentum is on our side, but there's still a very uphill battle that needs to be fought and won for all of these options to be easily accessible for kids. And I think part of that requires just a cultural shift in how we think about education. And I think there are a lot of myths that still need to be busted about what alternative education is and isn't and what public school is and isn't too. The outcomes there are not nearly as good as one might hope. It's not like you're leaving something phenomenal to take a huge risk in an alternative environment. People are leaving for a reason, but I'd love to hear your take on like what the biggest cultural narrative points are that need to change for some of this momentum to be more easily won towards alternatives. Because there, there are a lot of myths out there, everything from kids who go to alternative schools are weird and can't get jobs, uh, to the idea of you know, poor education outcomes, to the idea that well only certify teachers inside of the state bureaucracy are qualified to deliver a strong education to kids, which is absolutely not true. But there are a lot of different cultural narratives that we're fighting against. And I'm curious what the biggest ones are that you're seeing that need to change or what the biggest sort of storytelling areas that we need to win are for us to be able to continue to build momentum.
0: Yeah, it's such a good question, Hannah. I think that the big message for cultural change is that parents have choice in education. That for so long, for again, over a century and a half, um, parents have been required under a legal threat of force to send their children to an assigned district school. And now they're realizing that they may have other options that are accessible to them that are not these kind of elite private traditional schools that are uh, cost prohibitive or that they are, might not be aligned with their particular values and worldviews. Now there's just so many more choices. And we're already seeing that, for example, in states like Arizona, in Florida that have had um, robust school choice policies for a number of years, there is an ethos there of parental choice in education, that the, that the assigned district school doesn't have to be the default option, that parents know that they can look for other choices for their kids and that they can make different choices for different children if they have several children in their family. Uh, so I think it's just it's expanding that now on the national scale and really this kind of robust school choice movement uh, focused specifically around universal school choice has only just begun. Arizona um, was the first state to pass universal school choice. Back last year in 2022, several more states this year, EdChoice now estimates that about 18 million students in the U.S. have or will soon have access to private school choice programs. That's huge out of about 50 million students. So so we're getting there. Uh, And then it's just letting parents know that they do have these choices and, and helping them realize Um, that there are options for their kids. And that piece is really where the entrepreneurs are so crucial because the entrepreneurs will go out and build these models and uh, help families to realize that what they're offering is something that they should consider and that they should look into these these programs. And then back to kind of the access and affordability piece, as I mentioned, these micro schools and learning pods um, have always been inherently low cost and now their tuition price tags are really perfectly placed within a lot of these education savings account amounts that can run between sort of $6,000 or $8,000 per year per student. Well, that's right where these microschools schools were uh, and are. Um, so, that, you know, you can, you can attend these programs tuition free or nearly tuition free because they are, um, again, inherently low cost. So I think we're just at the beginning of this. I think we'll still see a lot of growth. And I think millions of children and their parents will realize for the first time that they have choices and that those choices are better, different, and could serve their, their, their students well.
1: What is the momentum looking like? We're in the fall of 2023. So we're three and a half years past the initial shutdown of schools during COVID. Uh, there was a huge spike in people exiting the status quo system during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. They saw what was happening in school up close for the first time. They weren't happy. They wanted their kids maybe to be in an in-person environment when their local public school wasn't reopening, but a homeschooling pod or a micro school was. They realized that kids could get their work done in a couple of hours a day. And they started to really question all of the bloat that's filling up kids' days and the necessity of their children being subjected to that, uh, having your kids not in public schools just like wasn't weird anymore because literally everybody had their kids at home and that really shifted the Overton window. There were a lot of things happening that caused people to leave the school system but the world has for the most part gone back to normal now. Like schools are open again, people, it's, it's, the, it's just as easy as it always was to just default to sending your kids back to the local public school. And so I know a lot of alternative models saw a really big spike at the start of the pandemic or early on in the pandemic that kind of leveled off again. But at the same time, it seems generally for the movement, like the momentum is continuing to climb and it has not slowed down, even though the you know the system is reopened and people can be going back they're still leaving right. what are you seeing in terms of momentum going into this school year and kind of how things stack up with between the momentum of exiting the system versus the staying power of the incumbent system yeah
0: great question i mean so we're already you know still at above or above pre pandemic levels in terms of homeschooling numbers um, mm-hmm. that, that there are not at the peak we were in kind of 2020, when more than 11 percent of the uh, American school-age population was being homeschooled, according to the Census Bureau. But we're still well above where we were, um, roughly about 5.5 percent of students being homeschooled independently now in the U.S., compared to uh, just over 3 percent pre-pandemic, according to, again, national data. So there's that piece of it. I think you're right that more families are leaving public schools, school choice policies in combination with the education disruption caused by COVID um, have led to that ability for families to access these alternatives and to exit an assigned district school. So we're seeing more of that. And then certainly anecdotally, what I'm seeing on the ground and where I'm talking to entrepreneurs, uh, this is not abating. So I'll give kind of two quick examples. One is a Former public school teacher in Kansas City area taught for 17 years, grew tired of that classroom, wanted something different for her children. So she ended up last fall, the fall of 2022, opening uh, Crossroad Trails Academy, uh, which is a learning center. Young people can come, kind of choose whatever curriculum they and their families want, but come to this learning center. Uh, up to five days a week, full-time if they, if they choose, at about $4,500 a year for a full-time option, so significantly lower than other private, choi- private education choices. She started in um, August of 2022 with eight students. By November, she had 20. Uh, it was growing so quickly that she ended up expanding from the one commercial storefront for- that she was in to the adjacent storefront, kind of took down some walls, opened up some doors. She now has over 33 students, or she has 33 students and a long waiting list, uh, but she's really at capacity at the moment. So that's one example. Uh, up here where I am in Massachusetts, there's a, a hybrid homeschool program, a faith-based micro school just outside of Boston that had just over 20 students in 2020. They now have over 70 students attending their program, again, right in that same price point, about $4,500 a year. Um, and they don't and they have wait lists too for several of their classes. So, you know, there's just so much momentum. As more and more families realize that these options exist, I think they will uh, seek them out. I think more people will build them if they can't find them, and that's a message that I like to send. If if nothing exists that you like in your neighborhood, don't be afraid to go build it. And then I do think the proliferation of school choice policies that enable funding to follow families will just lead to increasing access to these programs. If parents
1: are looking to pull their kids from the public system and they're hoping to find resource support, so they're hoping to not be paying completely out of pocket for their child's education, there are a lot of resources out there but they're kind of hard to find. There's like, even if you're in a state that doesn't have universal school choice access, a lot of states have partial access or they have scholarship and grant programs. There are lots of private scholarship programs that parents can look at and use, but it's not necessarily easily accessible. It's not necessarily easy to find. Do you have recommendations, if a parent's listening to this, and they want to know what financial resources might be available to them if they're not in a state like Iowa or Florida or Arizona that's passed a universal school choice program, do you have recommendations for where they might go to start looking or what questions they might even start asking to see what's available to them?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the common characteristics that I find with the microschools that I visit and, and the founders I talk to is they are hyper-focused on accessibility. They want any student who wants to attend their program to be able to attend regardless of financial ability. and. That is true in areas where there are robust school choice policies and in areas where there aren't. So I would start looking for the programs. And then families might be surprised not only, but may they be more financially accessible than families realize that this is not a $50,000 a year private school. Um, This may actually be affordable for families even without school choice policies. But if it's not, many of these schools do active fundraising and they try to find their own grants and scholarship programs to be able to uh, make their programs financially accessible to more families. So I'd start looking, and I think ways to start looking are Um, You know, don't underestimate kind of Facebook parenting groups or homeschooling groups or uh, alternative education resources to find out what might be available in your area. Um, You know, I can give some examples would be the National Microschooling Center, the Vela Education Fund, loveyourschool.org, which is also compiling uh, examples of these different programs, the Alternative Education Resource Organization, ARO. Uh, So there are organizations that can um, help to identify some of the programs that are available. There's university model, uh, hybrid schools, which are these faith-based hybrid homeschool programs all across the country, dozens of those across the U.S., Um, but often just starting with kind of local parenting networks um, and education networks, especially in the alternative education space can be a great starting point and families may be surprised at what's available really close to them at affordable rates.
1: And if people found this interview interesting and they wanna learn more about you and the work that you're doing, Where would you send them next? You have a phenomenal podcast to plug. You have your book. You write very prolifically. Where would you send them next?
0: Yeah, you can. Thanks, Hannah. You can um, listen to my podcast, Liberated Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's liberatedpodcast.com. There you'll find links to my articles at Forbes and The 74 and fee.org. And follow me on Twitter at kerry underscore edu.
1: Carrie's podcast really is amazing. You do a phenomenal job showcasing the people who are building alternative schools or families who are going through alternative models. You have so many interesting people telling, you know, boots on the ground, grassroots stories about what they're doing to build a local micro school in a small town or, you know, wherever their local area is where they're supporting kids and a lot of the types of stories that you've told here are also featured in a lot more detail on your podcast so if people enjoyed this they absolutely should give your podcast a listen it's amazing um thank you so much for taking the time to do this carrie this was such a fun conversation oh
0: thanks hannah it's so good to talk with you i'm so excited by what you're building and the impact that you're having in talking more about the possibilities in education in championing uh, unconventional educational models, particularly those that put learners first and enable learners to really have um, a much greater say in directing their own education and their own path.
1: Yeah, we'll absolutely do this again. I look forward to the next installment of Carrie on the show, but until then, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Yana. All right. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star rating. Ratings are how this show gets discovered by other people, and it helps me bring in better guests. And no matter where you're listening, please like and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss a future episode. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week.